This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Valentine's Day is coming up, and you know what that means. Time for hearts and flowers and all that mess. And if you're not too jaded at this point in your life, you're probably thinking about your sweetie and all the plans you have to make the day special. But if you think about it, isn't it a little odd that we have an actual day that we set aside as a holiday to commemorate love? Well, I'm going to add to that by doing something even stranger. Once Upon a Crime will be detailing true crime stories all month in which love went terribly wrong and brought out the worst in people. Our new series, Sweetheart Killers, tells stories of people who committed acts of violence to win their beloved or couples who killed together. In the first chapter, I outline a tale of a young girl who became obsessed with her older married lover and sought to eliminate the rival for his affection. This is chapter one, Amy Fisher, the Long Island Lolita. It was a bright and sunny spring day on May 19, 1992. Mary Jo Buttafuoco was on her back deck, painting a bench to match her patio furniture. The weather was starting to warm up, and she was looking forward to summer and warm days outdoors with her family and entertaining friends. Mary Jo lived with her husband of almost 15 years, Joey, in Massapequa, Long Island, New York. Mary Jo and Joey had met in high school in 1971 and had begun dating in the 11th grade. Joey was a popular boy in high school, well-liked by his classmates. Mary Jo was a pretty blonde who, like Joe, came from a traditional Catholic family. By the time they were set to graduate high school, they knew they would end up getting married. The fall after they graduated, they did just that. They also purchased a small home just a couple of miles from Joey's father's auto body shop in Baldwin. Joey went to work in the family business, and Mary Jo got a job at a bank. Mary Jo was happy as a young wife, with a home to fix up and decorate. She wasn't planning on being a career woman. What she wanted was a home and a family. She was finally pleasing her parents. She had been a bit rebellious as a teen, nothing serious, but her parents were thrilled to see her as a responsible young woman and a happily married bride with a loving husband. Sooner than she'd planned, she found out she was pregnant with their first child. The first couple of years of their marriage, Mary Jo and Joey had enjoyed their freedom and parties as well. They both had tried cocaine, the drug of the moment in 1977, but now Mary Jo stopped all those activities in anticipation of having a healthy baby. Joey was also excited about becoming a father, but he was still a thrill-seeker. When Mary Jo was far into her pregnancy, they were driving home one evening when police lights flashed behind them. Joey, at first, pulled over, but when the officer stepped out of his car, Joey hit the gas and took off. Mary Jo was stunned and screamed at Joe to stop. He told her it wasn't a real cop behind them, but a railroad patrol officer, and he couldn't do anything to them. Soon the officer must have called for backup, because before they reached home, several real police vehicles were also chasing them. Mary Jo was terrified. Joey, calm as could be, told her to tell them that she was having labor pains, and he'd take care of everything. While Joey charmed the cops with a story about how he'd panicked when he thought his wife was going into labor, Mary Jo exited the car, and the cops, seeing her advanced pregnancy, let them go. Mary Jo couldn't believe her husband had put their lives and the life of their unborn baby at risk but Joey seemed to get a rush from the whole ordeal. 
This would become something of a pattern in their marriage. Mary Jo was the grounded, responsible one, while Joe would play the role of the overgrown little boy, taking risks and being the life of the party. However, Joey became a partner in his father's successful auto body shop and provided a good income for his growing family. Their son, Paul, was born in 1980, and their second child, a daughter they named Jessica, was born three years later. But Joey continued using cocaine, and his usage increased to the point that he would be gone for days on drug binges. Mary Jo would hold the fort together at home, but as a result, she suffered from debilitating panic attacks. She was a full-time mother of two small children, three children if she counted her husband, and was in charge of all the adult responsibilities for the family. Joey still had a job since he worked for the family business, but Mary Jo increasingly had to call and make excuses when her husband was missing or unable to get up for work. She assumed the classic enabler role, fixing his problems and making excuses for his irresponsible behavior. She would nag and berate him, and he would always be contrite, especially when she threatened to divorce him. Then he'd beg her to stay, telling her he loved her and being attentive and loving. But as soon as things seemed to be improving, the pattern would start all over again. Mary Jo was embarrassed and kept the secret from her friends and family. Mary Jo thought that perhaps if Joey wasn't so close to his party buddies, he might be less inclined to bad habits. She wanted to move back to Massapequa, their hometown. They found a house right on the water and next door to the Biltmore Shores Beach Club. It was big enough for their growing family, and the price was right. Mary Jo was thrilled when Joey told her he'd found a buyer for their house that would pay cash. On moving day, she was busy packing up the last of their belongings and waiting for Joey to arrive so that they could sign the papers on their new house. When he finally did arrive, he told her he needed to talk to her. It was then that he told her that there was no money. The cash buyer was actually Joey's cocaine dealer, and Joey had signed the deed over to him to pay him all the money he owed him, $50,000. Mary Jo was horrified and furious. Joey scrambled to fix things once again. This time he went to his father-in-law, who gave him the 50000 in order to keep his grandchildren from homelessness. But in return, Joey had to give up his ownership in the business. From now on, he would be merely an employee. But once they moved to their new house, Joey's drug habit became worse. He would go on binges for days at a time and came back looking sick and out of it. Finally, after some months of this, Mary Jo took matters into her own hands. She waited for him to come home and had his bag packed in his bed already reserved at a drug treatment facility. This time, she employed the help of family and friends, no longer caring to keep his secret. Once he knew he had no options, Joey relented. To his credit, he completed the three-week stay and attended a 12-step program afterwards. After 10 years, Joey was clean and sober. The next few years were happy ones for the couple. Mary Jo enjoyed being a stay-at-home mom and became active in the kids' schools as well as serving as board secretary at the next-door beach club. They purchased a small boat that they docked at the marina next door. It was a fun activity for the kids as well as for visiting family and friends. Life was good for the Buttafucos. The kids were happy and healthy. Mary Jo and Joey were a happy couple once again, enjoying their life together, and Joey was the popular guy like he used to be in high school. He was well-liked in the neighborhood and was always willing to help out a person in need. He'd get calls from people who'd had car accidents or fender benders and would drop whatever he was doing to pick them up in the company tow truck, calm them down, and work out all the details. He was also a talented car repairer and restorer. He even did some fancy paint jobs for sports cars and motorcycles. 
everything seemed back to normal until that one spring day in 1992 when Mary Jo's life would change forever. We just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you about CrimeCon. CrimeCon is the first ever conference dedicated to true crime fanatics like you and me. It will take place this June 9th through 11th in Indianapolis, Indiana. What can you expect? A weekend that celebrates all things true crime with fabulous guests like Aphrodite Jones and Nancy Grace. Interactive experiences that put you in the role as the eyewitness to a crime or a jury member on a murder case. And there will also be a murder museum. And for the first time ever, your favorite True Crime podcast hosts will be all together for you to chat with, discuss cases, and just get your true crime fix. I will be there and other great true crime podcasts like Generation Y, Insight, Curiosity Kills, Thinking Sideways, Missing Maura Murray, Twisted Philly, and so many more. And there's still time to get discounted tickets, but do it quickly. Prices go up after February 28th. And you can get an additional 20% discount by using my offer code onceupon 20 at checkout. So visit CrimeCon.com and register today, and I'll see you there. In May 1992, life was good for Mary Jo. On this warm spring day, she had sent her kids off to school before beginning her painting project. Paul was 12 years old and in the sixth grade, and Jennifer was nine and a third grader. They had asked permission to ride their bikes to school that day, and Mary Jo had agreed. It was such a nice day, and the kids were excited about school ending soon, and the long summer that stretched out before them. And Massapequa was such a safe place that she didn't worry about them doing that. A lot of the neighborhood kids would ride their bikes to school when the weather was mild. As a matter of fact, she felt so safe that she had left the front door open as she worked in the back of the house in order to circulate air to reduce the paint fumes. As she painted the bench in the back, she thought of the upcoming vacation that she and Joey were taking for their 15th wedding anniversary. The tickets for their trip to Jamaica were already purchased, and she mentally made a list of the things she would need to purchase and pack for the trip. Her reverie was broken when the doorbell chimed. It was common for friends and neighbors to drop by unannounced, but she wondered who this could be, because since the door was open, one of her neighbors would most likely have just called out to her and stepped inside, not rang the doorbell. She walked to the front door, removing her painting gloves as she went. On the porch, she saw a girl she didn't recognize. She appeared to be about 14 years old, with long, dark hair. "'What can I do for you?' she asked the girl. "'Are you Mrs. Buttafuco?' she asked. "'Yes,' Mary Jo answered. The girl looked nervous, glancing back over her shoulder. Pointing her gaze in that direction as well, Mary Jo saw what appeared to be a teenaged boy sitting in the driver's seat of the car parked directly across the street. "'I need to talk to you about your husband, Joey,' the girl said. "'I came to tell you that Joey is having an affair with my little sister.' Mary Jo was skeptical. Her little sister had to be a grade schooler, she thought. "'How old are you?' she asked. Nineteen, the girl answered, seeming to become more nervous. And how old is your little sister? She's sixteen. Didn't you hear what I just told you? She seemed to be losing patience now and getting agitated. I heard you, Mary Jo answered, but I'm having a little trouble believing you. What's your name? The girl hesitated before answering, Anne-Marie. And where do you live, Anne-Marie? She pointed behind her. Bar Harbor, she answered. Now Mary Jo knew the girl was lying. She'd lived on Long Island her whole life and knew that Bar Harbor was in the exact opposite direction from where the girl pointed. 
Aren't you upset by what I'm telling you? The girl asked, now becoming angry. What are you so nervous about, Anne-Marie? Mary Jo asked, becoming annoyed now. This girl was playing some kind of game. She just didn't know what it was, and she was also wasting her time. Don't you think it's disgusting that a 40-year-old man is having sex with a 16-year-old? She spat out. Mary Jo, trying to humor this obviously confused girl, joked, Well, sure, but don't make him 40 yet. He's only 36. I'm also having a hard time believing you, Mary Jo said. She then asked her who the boy in the car was. That's my boyfriend, she quickly said, and then thrust an item at her. I have proof. She showed her a polo shirt with the logo of her father-in-law's auto body shop. I found this in my little sister's bed when I was making it. He came over during work and had sex with her and left his shirt. Wait, Mary Jo said. He left this in the bed and went back to work with no shirt on? Anne-Marie had no answer to that. Look, Anne-Marie, I don't know what you want me to do about this, but I'll go inside and call Joey and I'll tell him you came by, Mary Jo said calmly. Truth be told, Mary Jo was calm because she was used to having to deal with the messes Joey made. But inside, she was also angry with her husband. Who knows what he was up to now? Mary Jo turned to go back inside, dismissing the girl with, Thanks for coming by. As she reached for the doorknob, the girl pulled out a twenty-five caliber semi-automatic pistol and fired one shot. It hit Mary Jo in the right side of the head. She never saw it coming. She would not know what had happened until she emerged from a coma three days later. The girl on the doorstep was lying, but not, as it would turn out, about everything. Her name was not Anne-Marie, but Amy Fisher. She was not 19, but 17 years old. She also didn't live in Bar Harbor, probably why she pointed in the wrong direction, but in Merrick, Long Island. She'd borrowed the name of a friend who did live in Bar Harbor for the ruse. Amy Fisher was the only child of Elliot and Rose Fisher, who owned an upholstery shop in nearby Freeport. A senior at John F. Kennedy High School, Fisher was an attention-seeking teen who was indulged by her parents. Her parents had purchased her a car, a 1989 Dodge Daytona, when she was 16. She would later upgrade to a 1990 black Chrysler LeBaron convertible. She also had a pager, a real luxury for most high school students at that time. In December of 1990, when Amy was 16 years old, she got into an accident in her Dodge Daytona. Her father took her car to be repaired at Complete Auto Body and Fender. Amy began dropping by the shop to check on her car and met Joey. By all accounts, she was a flirty teenager who often dropped by wearing skimpy, low-cut outfits. Most of the men at the shop saw her as trying too hard and called her jailbait, but they would tease her and she seemed to enjoy the attention. Soon, it seems, she set her sights on Joey, becoming infatuated with him. Mary Jo collapsed after being shot in the head and fell in her doorway. Amy took off with the boy in the car. A neighbor heard the gunshot and then saw Mary Jo and called 911. Mary Jo was airlifted to Nassau County Medical Center. The bullet had entered the right side of her head, right in front of her ear. It had shattered her jawbone, nicked her carotid artery, and lodged near her spine. She lost half of her blood, and when she arrived at the emergency room was given a 50-50 chance of survival. After eight hours of surgery, she was in critical but stable condition. The right side of her face was paralyzed. She was unable to close her eye or move that side of her mouth. She would remain deaf in her right ear. The surgeons deemed it too risky to try and remove the bullet, so she would have to live with it lodged in her skull for the rest of her life. She was in enormous pain and would be put on heavy painkillers for some time. 
As soon as she was able to, police were there to try and find out what had happened. There were no witnesses to the shooting. At first, unable to speak, Mary Jo would write out the answers to their questions. She first wrote, 19-year-old girl. They were stunned. They thought for sure it had to be a man who'd shot her. And a teenager? She then wrote, Anne-Marie, and T-shirt. Later, after her tracheotomy tube was removed, she was able to give more details. She told them about the polo shirt that the girl had brought as proof. Joey then said he knew who it must be. She was the daughter of an auto body client. He had just received those shirts and she had taken one and was the only one to have been given one so far. Also, the girl he named as Amy Fisher matched the description his wife gave to police. They were able to find a picture of Amy and when they showed it to Mary Jo, she confirmed that she was the girl who'd come to her home that day. Amy Fisher was picked up by police soon after at her home in Merrick. The police thought that this would be a simple case of a young, naive girl who had become infatuated with an older married man, and when he rejected her advances, decided to take revenge by shooting his wife. But it was quickly determined that Amy was no demure little girl. She was a tough nut to crack. She didn't seem intimidated at all by police officers who were accusing her of assault with a deadly weapon. As a matter of fact, it took hours of interrogation, with Amy alternately threatening and angry, before she finally admitted to what they already knew, that she had shot Mary Jo Buttefuoco. Amy told a different version of the events, however. In her 10-page statement, she explained that she had begun an affair with Joey Buttefuoco when she was only 16 years old. They had been seeing each other for more than a year when he began trying to break things off. She went to his house to let his wife in on the secret, but then I felt she was dismissing me, she said, and didn't care about what I was saying. I took the gun out of my pocket and hit her on the back of the head. I saw her stumble. I had my finger on the trigger. I went to hit her again because I was so angry. Then I raised the gun again and it went off. I heard a pop sound and saw blood coming out of her head. In Amy's version, the gun went off accidentally. Also in her version, she said Joey had given her the gun. She would try to make a case off and on that Joey wanted Mary Jo out of the way and planned the shooting with his teenage lover. Later, she recanted that he'd secured the gun for her, admitting that she had purchased it for $800 from a friend, Peter Guagenti, a 21-year-old auto store employee. He was also the boy Mary Jo had seen in the car. Joey would deny he had anything to do with Mary Jo's shooting, and the police didn't find any evidence that he was aware of Fisher's plans. Joey would deny that his relationship with Amy was anything but platonic. She was simply the daughter of a client. He swore to Mary Jo and his family that he didn't have anything to do with her. He couldn't admit to a relationship with her, of course, unless he wanted to be charged with, at the very least, statutory rape. Amy was arrested for attempted murder. The story, at first, received little attention. That was until a little over a week later, when the tabloid TV show A Current Affair aired a 15-minute-long video that had been sold to them by a 28-year-old man. In the video, Amy Fisher is seen engaging in sex with the man for money. He had secretly recorded three such meetings with Fisher, who he said was a prostitute. Fisher is recorded as saying, Let's take care of business. Then we don't have to worry about this when we take care of pleasure. I don't like to think of business and pleasure at the same time. He is then seen paying her $100, after which they engage in sex. Later, he asks her to accompany him to a bachelor's party. Anything, she replies. I'm wild. I don't care. I like sex. 
the news spread like wildfire. Amy Fisher was dubbed the Long Island Lolita, and newspapers, news programs, and television talk shows covered the story of the high school student by day and prostitute by night. More of Amy's customers came forward to give information to the district attorney's office that was handling Amy's case. It was reported that Amy first worked for an escort service starting at age 15, and then after obtaining a pager, began having her male clients call her directly for their dates, in that way keeping all the money for herself. The district attorney's office charged Fisher with attempted second-degree murder, first-degree assault, and several firearm-related felonies, and asked for bail to be set at an unprecedented $2 million. Fisher, they asserted, was a flight risk, as well as a continued danger to Mary Jo Buttafuoco, as she was the only person who could identify her shooter. He went on to say, describing this defendant as a 17-year-old high school student would be about as accurate as describing mob boss John Gotti as a businessman. Amy's attorney, Eric Nyberg, was outraged, saying that Amy was being prosecuted more harshly due to her sexuality more than anything else. He then put out a startling offer. He would sell exclusive rights to Fisher's story to anyone who would put up the $2 million bail. He also claimed that if Fisher was a prostitute, it was because Joey had pimped her out, steering her into that lifestyle. He also said that Joey was a known pimp and was called Joey Cocoa Pops by his girls because he also supplied them with cocaine. The judge was not swayed by this, finding no evidence that Buttafuoco had ever been involved with prostitution. He granted the $2 million bail, and Amy was jailed to await trial. Mary Jo went home to start her long period of recovery. Joey, instead of lying low, decided to go on the Howard Stern show to assert his innocence. He announced on the radio to millions of people that he was innocent that he'd never had an affair with Amy Fisher, that he loved his wife, and didn't have anything to do with her shooting. He called Fisher's claims delusional. Mary Jo also defended her husband. The story is pretty simple, she said. I love my Joey. My Joey loves me. Fisher's attorney, meanwhile, did make a deal with a Hollywood film production studio for her story, thus raising a good portion of her bail. Fisher was then released. Mary Jo was furious and soon after filed a civil lawsuit against her shooter for over $100 million. Mary Jo also cut her own deal for the rights to her side of the story to CBS Television for six figures. On September 23, 1992, Amy Fisher agreed to avoid a trial and a possible longer sentence if she was found guilty for attempted murder by pleading guilty to the lesser charge of reckless assault. She was given a reduced sentence of 5 to 15 years and was also required to aid investigators, who were still interested in pursuing Joey Buttafuoco on a statutory rape charge. Mary Jo spoke out against the DA's interest in her husband and their deal with Fisher. She tried to kill me, and now she's taking my husband and trying to destroy us. This girl is an attempted murderer, a liar, a prostitute, and the DA is accepting her statement that she and Joey were together. Something's wrong here. But prosecutors have been getting information that Joey's relationship with Amy was far from platonic. They found dozens of pages to Amy's beeper from Joey. He used the code 007 when paging her, much more than would have been required to keep her updated on her car repairs. Some employees at the auto body shop said they suspected Joey was sleeping with the teenager, with one even reporting that Joey bragged about his sexual relationship with Fisher. The DA believed that Joey began having sex with Fisher several times a week for over a year, at the shop, on his boat, and at motels. The attorney's office was able to obtain motel receipts for times when Fisher reported she'd met Buttafuoco. 
They had the signatures analyzed, and it was determined that they closely matched Joey's handwriting. But while on bail, Fisher was secretly videotaped by a boyfriend, Paul Makeley. She talked about marrying Makeley so that they could have conjugal visits while she was in prison, and also bragged about being famous and about buying a sports car with the money she'd make off of her notoriety. He sold the tape to another tabloid television show, Hard Copy. When it was released, she became suicidal and was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. She then voluntarily returned to prison to avoid the media. Now Amy Fisher's credibility was shot, so the DA, without her testimony, didn't have enough to indict Buttafuoco and dropped the case against him. The case against Fisher herself was bolstered by two men who said Amy had recruited them to help her carry out her murderous plans. As far back as the August before the shooting, Amy had offered a high school friend sex and money to help her kill Mary Jo Buttafuoco. The boy declined, but introduced her to a 20-year-old named Stephen Sleeman. Sleeman said for the next two months, he met her at the marina next door to the Buttafuoco home, where they would sit and watch Mary Jo's movements and learn her routine. Amy said she would pay Sleeman with sex and also give him $600. He said Amy was infatuated with Joey Buttafuoco and talked about him nonstop. Amy's plan, Sleeman said, was for him to hide in the bushes with a hunting rifle while Amy went to the door on some ruse. When Mary Jo answered the door, he was to shoot her. He said he never intended to go through with it and never loaded the gun. When the time came, he said, forget it, and thought, this girl's psycho. Amy told him she'd do it herself. In April, Amy found someone else to help her, Paul Guagenti. He agreed to sell her the gun, but refused to do the shooting, opting to drive the getaway car instead. On May 19th, he drove her to the Buttafuoco's home, where she carried out her plan. On December 1st, 1992, Fisher was in court to be sentenced. Mary Jo Buttafuoco was allowed to speak about the impact that Fisher's actions would have on her the rest of her life. The lifelong pain, the deafness in her right ear, and also how it affected her family, especially her children, to live through such a violent act committed on their mother. Amy Fisher spoke next. I realized what I did was terribly wrong. I put Mrs. Buttafuoco and her children through so much pain. And for that, I'm deeply sorry. If I could take her pain away, if I could change everything, I would. The judge was not convinced of her remorse, saying, You are a disgrace to yourself, your family, and your friends. You were like a walking stick of dynamite with the fuse lit. He then sentenced her to the maximum 5 to 15 years in prison. The media coverage of the Long Island Lolita story resulted in no less than three made-for-TV movies about the case. One was released in 1992, with two more being aired in 1993, with Drew Barrymore playing Fisher in one and Alyssa Milano in the other. The Buttafuoco's also made the talk show circuit, including interviews on A Current Affair and The Phil Donahue Show with Mary Jo still insisting on her husband's innocence in the whole affair. Mary Jo also settled her $125 million lawsuit against Amy Fisher and Paul Guagenti for an undisclosed sum. Guagenti received six months in prison for selling Fisher the handgun and driving her to the Buttafuoco home that day. Staying in the public eye may have also helped keep Joey on the district attorney's radar, because in April 1993, he was indicted on six counts of statutory rape 12 counts of sodomy, and one count of endangering the welfare of a child as a result of having sex with Amy Fisher when she was still 16 years old. He pled not guilty. But in October, before a judge, 
Joey pled guilty to one count of statutory rape. He admitted to having sex with Amy Fisher once. On July 2, 1991, he stated, I had sexual relations with Amy Fisher at the Freeport Motel. But if Hugo's attorney, Dominic Barbera, downplayed his guilty plea, saying, There is a family involved here. That's the man he is. He did what he had to do in that courtroom so everybody else's life could go on. He was sentenced to six months in prison and five years probation and fined $5,000. He served four months before being released. Joey's friends threw him a welcome home party. Mary Jo and his children were happy to have him home again. Well, that should have been the end of the whole sordid affair. But surprise, it's not. Rumors, gossip, and scandals continue to emerge about both Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco for years to come. Amy Fisher would serve almost seven years in prison before being released, in large part because Mary Jo said she'd forgiven her and told the judge Amy was a mixed-up girl who made a mistake. Fisher was granted parole in 1999 after the judge vacated her guilty plea and shortened her sentence. While she was in prison, however, it was reported that Fisher had a sexual affair with a guard as well as at least one lesbian relationship. Joey Buttafuoco, rather than fading into the background, continued to be addicted to the spotlight. Even though his name had been dragged through the mud and the name Buttafuoco made a running joke on late-night television, he continued to fly to Los Angeles to do television appearances, now selling the story of the sacrifice he made for his family by pleading guilty and serving a jail sentence. In May 1995, he flew out to Los Angeles once more for an appearance. While there, he was arrested for soliciting an undercover cop for sex. He pleaded no contest and was ordered to pay fines and put on two years probation. Back home in New York, he was charged with violation of his probation and sentenced to 10 months in prison. He served three months before being released. When he returned from his stint in jail, his brother fired him from the auto body shop. They were losing business due to all the bad publicity. The brothers had a falling out, and Joey lost his job. His father, Cass, had died of lung cancer shortly before Joey was sent back to jail. Joey now decided the time was right to move to Los Angeles. Their friends had stopped coming around, and the family was now estranged. Joey also thought he could get opportunities in Los Angeles to capitalize on his fame. While those didn't materialize like he thought, he was able to make some friends and eventually was hired at an auto body shop where he quickly became right-hand man to the owner. He also landed several small roles in movies, mostly playing himself, the notorious Joey Buttafuoco. He was still trying to make a name for himself in Hollywood. Mary Jo entered rehab in 1998 for an addiction to prescription painkillers that started during her long recovery after the shooting. She came out clean and sober. Meanwhile, Joey began an affair with a customer that he'd met at the auto body shop. The story was quickly picked up by the media. Joey and Mary Jo separated in early 2000. Amy Fisher was released on parole in May of 1999 after serving seven years. She moved home with her mother and worked for a time as a columnist for the Long Island Press. She married Louis Bolera, who was 25 years her senior, in 2003. She released a book about her life titled, If I Knew Then, in 2004. She and her husband had three children together. However, in 2007, Fisher separated from her husband. Joey had since married the woman he'd been having an affair with at the end of his marriage to Mary Jo. They married in 2005, 
but were on the outs at the same time Fisher was separated from her husband. Fisher and Buttafuoco decided to reunite for a publicity stunt, announcing that they were back together at an event. They were using their notoriety to pitch a reality TV show. Fisher's husband retaliated by releasing a sex tape of his wife. In response, Amy Fisher used this as a springboard to launch a career as a porn actress. In 2009, she released a pay-per-view adult film and signed a contract to make several more films. She said the reason she did so was because she needed employment and no one else would hire her. By then, she had reconciled with her husband. She then appeared on a season of Celebrity Rehab to undergo treatment for her addiction to alcohol. She and her husband filed for divorce in 2015. Amy Fisher, age 42, now goes by the name Elizabeth Bolera and lives in Florida. She stopped making adult films in 2011, but still runs her XXX website. Joey Buttafuoco reconciled with his second wife, Ivanka, and continued to seek television and movie roles. His roles are mostly in the realm of reality television. He's appeared on The Judge Jeanine Pirro Show, Celebrity Boxing, and The Judge Alex Show. He had small roles in about a dozen movies. He runs an auto repair shop in Los Angeles. Mary Jo Buttafuoco married businessman Sue Tendler in 2012. She released a book titled Getting It Through My Thick Skull in 2009, in which she details being shot by Amy Fisher and her marriage to Joey Buttafuoco, who she now says she realizes is a sociopath who manipulated her for many years. She now shares her experiences and her lessons learned to help others who are living with sociopaths. She kicked her addiction to painkillers after her stint in rehab in 1998 and says she feels happier and stronger than any other time in her life. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Join me next time for Chapter 2 of Sweetheart Killers, where I will detail a rare phenomenon, a serial killer couple. I hope you'll join me then, and also follow the show on Twitter at Upon a Crime, and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>